this is, is that it's incredibly dangerous to be fake, right? It's incredibly dangerous to be fake, but it's also very easy to be fake. Not it is easy to be fake, it's dangerous to be fake, but here's the thing that we tell, kind of tell in that, in that like real story, is that when you are fake, it will always be exposed at some point. Right? When you are fake, it will always be exposed at some point. We're going to kind of talk about that tonight as we kind of dive into a new series going through First and Second Samuel. Now, as you approach First and Second Samuel, for us right now, we're just going to be focusing on First Samuel as we kind of start out. Uh, there's three main characters that you're going to be introduced to throughout this series, right? The first one is Samuel, who we're going to kind of talk about a little bit tonight. Then you're going to be introduced eventually to King Saul, and then you're going to be introduced to King David, right? So those are the three main kind of characters and those, those kind of character, like those story arcs that we're going to kind of look at as we go through First and Second Samuel. Here's the thing I want you to understand is that we're, there's a lot in First and Second Samuel that we are not going to be able to cover, Right? Like, we're starting in chapter 2. Chapter 1 has an incredible story in it, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to pick our spots as we go along, but here's what I want to encourage you to do, is like, take time to read it on your own, right? Take time to kind of read it on your own. To give you a little bit of context for where we're at, a little bit of context for where we're at, chapter 1, you're introduced to a woman named Hannah, who uh, has not had, uh, she, she has not had children, she is essentially like praying to God that God would give her a child, and she essentially prays that God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. I will dedicate him to you, and, and then there's a, they, she basically says that a no razor shall touch his head, essentially that, that her, this child would be a Nazarite uh, from birth. So we, we see this, uh, Nazarite was a common vow that people would take in the Old Testament, but we only see two people throughout all the Bible that are Nazarites from birth. One we see is going to be eventually Samuel. The other one, if you remember as we went through the book of Judges, does anyone remember who the other one is? Samson, I hear like half answers. They're like, Samson? Because they're like, don't want to be wrong. No, you're right. Samson, Samson, right? So we see uh, that he is dedicated to the temple. Now, there's a ton of backstory that we can get into, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to like 30,000 foot view, right? Kind of hit this as we go. Essentially, Samuel is of the tribe of Levi. And if you kind of know your Old Testament, how the tribes break out, the, the tribe of Levi were dedicated to be Levites and priests, which means that they were dedicated to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle, concerning the worship of God, the sacrifices of the people to God. Uh, not sacrificing people, but people's sacrifices. You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, Right, as they sacrificed things to God in worship, and this is this is what they were uh, set aside to do. Now, the interesting thing is that if you read your Old Testament, what you'll find is that the age where a person, a Levite, would kind of step into this special service was between thirty and fifty years old. Right, so between thirty years old to fifty years old is when they would kind of step into the special service, which is interesting that it started at thirty. Uh, as a little side note, because when did Jesus start his ministry? When he was thirty, right? So uh, that's just an interesting connection, right? But so for between thirty and fifty. But here's the interesting thing: is that Samuel was dedicated to this service from the time he was born. Right? God blesses Hannah with a child. She gives birth to a young boy named Samuel. And as after she weans him off, he, she literally dedicates him. And he lives in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Another history thing that's kind of 
going to be a little bit helpful to kind of avoid confusion. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem has not been built yet. So the tabernacle, which is basically kind of like a portable temple that they would set up, uh, the tabernacle is established in, in Shiloh, which is a little bit, n- which is kind of northern, uh, north of Jerusalem. And uh, that this is essentially where all of the people, the, 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 Israeli, the people of Israel would come to worship at Shiloh. Okay? You with me? Kind of. That's okay. I'm kind of like, I'm just hitting high level stuff. We're just, we're flying through. I'm going to slow down. Okay. Just roll with me. All right. So that's where we're at. So Samuel is living in the tabernacle and the high priest at the time is a gentleman named Levi or Eli, which we will also see here. Now, Eli is the priest. He is the priest of the people of Israel and he is the prophet of the people of Israel. Now, the the priest had a responsibility to basically intercede. He kind of stood between the, uh, uh, he was kind of the go-between between God and his people, right? So God wanted to speak to the people. He would speak to the prophet. The prophet would speak to the people. And if the people wanted to worship God, they would go through the priest to God, right? This is kind of how this works. So this was Eli's role. He was in charge of making sure that the sacrifices and the worship of God that took place in the tabernacle was going as God had prescribed it to go. Now, all of this is very important to understand because if you don't understand at least surface level what we just talked about, it's going to be very hard to understand what exactly is going on in the beginning parts of Samuel, okay? So we kind of understand just the surface level of that because what we're going to see tonight is that it, what we're going to see uh, in, the, in the first chapter of Samuel is, that, is this, is that there is a big difference between being outwardly religious and having a true relationship with God. There is a big difference between being outwardly religious and having a true, genuine relationship with God. So I'm going to read, we're going to start in verse 12. I'm going to read from verse 12 to to verse 17. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork would brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, uh, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat to the priest to roast, for he will not uh, accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, uh, sorry, uh, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. All right. Here's the first thing that we're going to see tonight. Our first point is this. We're going to be looking at three things. The first we're going to see is fake religion. Fake religion. So Eli, who is the priest, all right, he's the priest of Israel. He has two sons, and their names are Hophni and Phinehas, okay? Not Phinehas and Ferb, right? But Hophni and Phinehas. So that's going to be helpful for you to kind of keep that in mind. So their names are Hophni and Phinehas. They're Eli's sons. And as the sons of Eli, they served in in the temple, in the tabernacle, under the supervision of their father. Now, First Samuel tells us something uh, as we continue on reading that Samuel, uh, sorry, that Eli at this point is very old. Okay, 
Eli's very old at this point. He's uh, to the point where his age has gotten to the point where he can't see very well. Uh, and his eyesight has begun to fade. And because of this, the sons of Eli took on more responsibilities in the priesthood. So they would do a lot of the things. They did a lot of the activities that the priest was responsible for carrying out. But we're introduced right away to the problem with these two sons. The very first thing we read, they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I find that really interesting, right? That they did not know the Lord. They didn't know God. And I mean, these were men that literally lived in the temple, right? They literally lived in the temple with their father. Surely they grew up watching their father perform the actions that the priest was supposed to perform. Throughout their entire lives, they, they watched as their father served in the priesthood. They, they certainly knew the commands of God, right? It would be like living in the church, like you lived in the church, you watched your father do all of these things your entire life. Surely they understood what was expected of them. They were performing the activities that the priest was supposed to perform. They were in line to succeed their father as the high priest. Their father passed away, they would step into that role. And we see clearly that they're already functioning in this position. So how, and it's so interesting, how is it that they can be literally surrounded and as scripture tells us, they did not know the Lord. I bring this up because right away we can acknowledge that Hophni and Phinehas could not blame the fact that they did not know God. They could not blame it on ignorance. They could not say, well, I didn't know. Or I had never heard it before. Right? They knew it outwardly. They knew it up here. But let me tell you something. External knowledge is no substitute for internal relationship. External knowledge of who God is is no substitute for internal relationship with God. See, it doesn't matter if you guys are here every single week. Of course, I love you to be. But it doesn't matter if you're here every single week. If It doesn't matter if you're here every time the doors are open. It doesn't matter if you know a lot about God. The question is, do you know God? It's not, do you know a lot about him? Can you recite the verses? It's, do you know God? The word know in the Hebrew here has a variety of different uses depending on the context that it's in. But what you'll find here is that it's clearly meaning knowing in the form of having an intimate relationship. Right? Having a relationship with. And please hear me, guys. Don't think that just because you grew up around Jesus that you have a relationship with Jesus. Don't think that just because your parents go to church every Sunday that you have a right relationship with Jesus. Don't think that just because you have friends that are tight with Jesus that you're tight with Jesus. Don't think that just because you grew up around Christianity that you actually are a Christian. I've given this example before, but I just, I love this example. My, my mom loves candles. Every year for Christmas, we go, and I either go to Yankee Candle or White Barn or whatever, and I get my mom these scented candles, and it's, like, amazing, like, the different scents that they have in these candles. And, and there's one that was uh, literally the label of it was freshly cut grass. And when I took the lid off, like, I smelled it, and legit, like, it smelled like freshly cut grass. I was like, yo, that's crazy impressive. But and it was like, it was almost as if you were to close my eyes and open that lid. I was like, yo, like, you just put freshly cut grass in front of me. But here's the thing is that it wasn't. That it ultimately, it smelled like it, but when it got down to it, it wasn't. And a lot of us, we may, like, smell like a Christian. But when you actually get down into it, we're really not. 
See, often the longest journey that Jesus makes in the life of a Christian is the 12 inches from your head to your heart. Do you just know Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? Or do you actually know and have a relationship with Jesus? So, of course, we're left with this question. How do we know that their religious activity was all fake? How do we know that their religion, that it was a fake religion? It was evident by the fruit of their life, right? It was evident by the fruit of their life. If you want to ask yourself, right, Paul says in Scripture, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Evaluate yourself. Ask yourself, where am I with God? This should be a regular question that you ask. Where am I with God? How do I know if what I'm doing is fake? Well, we already read what the specific sins that they were committing was. We see, we see that they were do clearly doing certain sins that were wrong, but it's possible that you may not have caught why what they were doing was so, e excuse me, well, why it was so evil. How can we properly identify our own tendency to fall into the same sin? And here's the thing. We're going to see this, that fake religion is identified in two ways. Fake religion is identified in two ways. The first way is this, the way a person interacts with God. Now I want you to see what it says about the custom, right? The custom of the priests was essentially when someone would bring a sacrifice, and while they, while they would bring a sacrifice, and they would take the meat, and they would place it in a pot, and they would boil it. The priest would stick the three-pronged fork in, and whatever meat came out, he kept for himself. Now, according to the law of God that God, God gave the people of Israel, right, whenever a sacrifice was offered, a portion was to go to God, right, which is kind of the whole point. A portion was to go to the person offering it, and a third portion was to go actually to the priest. Why? Because the priest, like, they, this was how they actually, like, lived, right? Was that they actually got to eat a part of what was offered as a sacrifice to God. It's, it's very similar to, like, a tithe, Right? It's like when you tithe, that there's a portion that goes to, like, pay the pastor, because if you don't, like, pastor doesn't get paid, right? Doesn't have a life, right? So it, it's, very, it's a very similar concept, right? But ultimately, the first fruits were to go to God. So Hophni and Phinehas taking a portion of the sacrifice to eat was not a problem. That was not the problem. The problem was how they did it. All right. Now I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 7 verse 29 and 32. And some of you are like, "Yes, Leviticus. I've been waiting, right? All right. Leviticus. Now just just this is why even though like there are some parts of the Bible that are kind of hard to understand and you're like, "What's the point?" This is why it's important. Because if you don't read it, you don't understand what's going on in 1 Samuel. So, Leviticus 7 God says, speak to the people of Israel, saying, whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. All right, so he's basically saying he's going to come bring the sacrifice. He shall bring the fat with the breast, and the breast uh, may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast meat shall be for Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons, it's the priest, okay? That's what that means. All right, and and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the uh, from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Now, what did we just read? Okay, here's what we just read. Now, we're like sprinting through this, but you're doing such a great job. I'm so proud and so happy for you. Right? All right, here's what's happening. God has prescribed that the priest was to eat a certain part of the sacrifice. All right, this is being offered. The priest eats this part, 
right? The part essentially right above the shoulder and the part of the right thigh. That was what was supposed to go to the priest, right? But what do we see Hophni and Phinehas doing that had become now the custom was that they would stick the fork in and they kept whatever the fork pulled out. Continuing in 1 Samuel, we see Hophni and Phinehas took this portion before the fat was burned. Now, why is that such a big problem? Because the fat of the animal was understood to be the best part, right? It was the best part. It was the most luxurious part of the animal. And that was the part that was the best that was supposed to go to God first. The best part goes to God first. But Hophni and Phinehas were saying, no, you give me my part first. And then don't give it to me cooked Give it to me raw. The reason that they wanted it raw could be one of two reasons. One, they wanted to cook it how they wanted it, but most likely what it is is that they could take the raw meat, they can sell it, and then they can pocket the change. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that they're incredibly corrupt. Right? They're asserting themselves before what rightly belongs to God. They put their desires, what they want, ahead of what God wants and when they didn't get what they wanted, they would threaten others with violence. Give it to me or I'll take it by force. So we see that there are essentially, what are, what are they doing? They're essentially, they're stealing for themselves what rightly belongs to God. And they're giving to God what's left over when they're done. That's the problem. Now some of you are like, look, I'm not the son of a priest. I don't live in the tabernacle. I don't stick a fork into a pot and take out meat. But all of us, all of us fall prey to this, where we place our desires ahead of God's, and then we give to God what's left over when we're done with it. All of us. Every person in this room is tempted to do that exact thing. They're putting what they want before what God wants, and that's ultimately the problem. See, the person that does not know God does not properly esteem what it means to worship him. If you want to know if your religion is fake, do you take seriously what it means to worship? Is worship serious to you? When we have tag time, is that a time where you're genuinely trying to get your heart right before the Lord? Or is it a time where you just kind of close your eyes and you wait until, me, until I close? See, for Hophni and Phinehas, God is a means to an end. They don't really care about what God wants. They don't really care about what God wants, but they quote-unquote worship him more because they know what's expected of them. It's just kind of what's expected. They know, I, I, I got to do it. They see their position as a means to get what they want. They see, I have this position as the son of the high priest, this position as someone who works in the temple, uh, doing all the sacrifice, all these things. And what that does, that provides for me a way to get what I actually want. And so many people view their relationship with God this way. It's a means to an end. See, as long as I give God something, he'll be pleased with it. I want you to know that we are all prone to doing this all the time. We know what God expects. Hophni and Phinehas knew the word. They knew what God expected of them. They knew what God desired of them. They just didn't care. See, we know what God desires, but we assert our desires first, and then we somewhat 
try to please God with what's left over. And I want you to know something, that that's unacceptable in the eyes of God. It's unacceptable. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. What that means is not that he's envious of you. What that means is that God is jealous over you. God sees you as his prized possession. His, that, there's, that, that God loves you, and when you give yourself to lesser things, God does not accept a rival. See, I, I love my wife. To kind of put this, you know, I love my wife. I love my wife so much that I'm not willing to share her with another man. You with me? I'm not willing to share her with another man. That doesn't make me a dominating husband. It makes me a loving husband because I cherish my wife as special. And she deserves the best I can give. And, we say, and I am jealous for my wife. It's funny that when we say that God is jealous for you, that we oftentimes, what do we do? We say, well, that means that God is insecure, or God is this, or God is that. But then when we say that, and it comes to the attributes of a husband, we say that's a good husband. What is it? Right? I find it interesting also what it says in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For, why? So for, right? It was a bad, very bad, very great, very bad sin. Why? Because, what? For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, the sin was great because of the way they treated worship of God. In the Hebrew, this word contempt literally means that they despised it. They hated it. Hophni and Phinehas had a bigger problem than loving themselves too much. It wasn't that they loved themselves too much. The real problem that 1 Samuel tells us is that they despised God. If you remember as we went through the book of Romans, we saw this, that all people naturally, this is where we find ourselves, that we may love the God that we have made up in our minds, but the God of the Bible, apart from our saving relationship with Jesus, we don't like that God. See, you can tell what someone thinks of God based on how they worship him. That's facts, by the way. You can tell what someone thinks of God based on the way they worship him. Now, I don't simply mean worship by singing songs. I don't simply mean worship by means of when the band is playing or, or, or whatever. I'm not, or, or I'm not talking about worship strictly when you're talking about in this room. I'm talking the worship of your daily life. Romans 12.1, what does it say? In response to the gospel, it says, Therefore, what? We should offer our, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does it say? That we should live our life as an act of worship towards God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we are living stones being built together, uh, being built up to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what Pastor Ethan's going to preach on this Sunday, so I'm going to stop there because I don't want to steal his thunder, right? Our life from the moment you wake up to the time that you go to sleep is an act of worship to God. And the way you feel about God will be reflected in the lifestyle of worship you offer him. The way you feel about God is evident in the way you live your life. And here's the thing, is that if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe you're like, well, you look at your life and you're like, well, if you were to look at my life, it would seem that I don't love God, but, but I do love God. Here's the question. Do you? Do you? Don't trust what you think about yourself. Look at yourself honestly. Please know something. 
your worship to God is not limited to what happens in this room on Sundays and Tuesdays. In fact, I once heard it said that when a church gathers together, or we gather to do corporately or together what each one of us should be doing individually during the week. And the reason that some people struggle to worship God corporately is because uh, when they're here is because they don't worship him individually during the week. What we're seeing here in this passage is that, is, is that if you, no, sorry, what we're seeing in this passage is that if you then, like, don't be surprised when you struggle to worship in church if you don't worship at home. Don't be surprised. And here's the thing. If you're not worshiping at home, then when you come here, you're probably not worshiping here either. problem that if we struggle to worship in our life, the problem is that there's a, there is a problem with our affections towards God. Now, again, I want you to hear me, that nobody loves God as much as he deserves. So let's take some pressure off for a second, right? Including myself. I do not love God as much as he deserves. If I'm being honest with you, I don't love God as much as I possibly can. There's always room for me to grow in my love for God. But here's the thing. Like, that's the mark of the Christian, isn't it? Consistently desiring to love God more today than I did yesterday. This is the aim of the Christian life, is to grow in our love for God on a daily basis. But fake religion is most evident in the lifestyle of worship that a person offers to God. That's where you can see fake religion. Don't tell me you have a real life-changing relationship with God if you despise the worship he calls you to offer. Don't tell me the Holy Spirit of God lives within you if you despise offering God a life that is acceptable to him. But I also want us to see something else. Fake religion is evident in how the person interacts towards God, but it's also this, that fake religion is evident in the way that a person interacts with other people. Notice that Hophni and Phineas would threaten violence towards people who wouldn't give them what they wanted. Here's the thing, is that if they knew these people, they knew that the fat was to be offered first. But if they didn't, but Hophni and Phineas didn't get it, they would threaten violence. These people are trying to do what God has called them to do, but Hophni and Phineas are not letting them. Ultimately, their problem with others flowed from the fact that they didn't have a right relationship with God. And you see, if your faith in God doesn't change the way you interact with other people, with humility, with grace, with compassion, with patience and love, then you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself. If your relationship with God is enough to save you, it's enough to change the way you interact with other people. And I want to say this as lovingly as I possibly can. I'm hopping off the notes for a moment. This point's in my notes, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to read my notes because I want to be genuine with you. Some people say that they have this thriving relationship with God. They project this Christianity. But when you watch the way they talk to people and about people, it totally contradicts the faith that they profess. I'm talking to people in this room. 
in this room. Don't tell me you have a right relationship with Jesus in here and then step into the lobby and start talking bad about other people. That's fake. That's fake. This isn't just a student thing. This is a leader thing too. Here's the thing, guys. A healthy student ministry culture, a healthy culture, it doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't stay healthy by accident. So when there's problems that need to be addressed, let's address them. Let's have a family meeting and talk about it. There's a lot of, let's just, look, I'm just going to be real. If you're listening on a podcast or on YouTube, I'm sorry. But look, there's a lot of, like, talking crap about people. What is that? What is that? The Holy Spirit of God lives within you. But you're talking crap about people made in the image of God. Some people talk all this about their relationship with God, but when you interact with other people who also claim to love and follow God, you show zero evidence of your profession being true. You have no patience for people. You can't say anything positive about people. Everything is negative, negative, negative. I'm going to be real with you guys for just a minute, right? Like, I hear people talking about people behind their backs, and it's truthfully ridiculous. Students talking poorly about other students, and leaders talking about other leaders, and students talking about leaders, and leaders talking about students. I'm not going to go to encounter because this leader is teaching, and I don't like that leader. Or, or a leader asks you to do something, and your response is, well, you're not Mike, so I don't have to listen to you. Come on, guys, that's not Christ-like. Don't, don't, don't flex Jesus in here and act like that out there. You could tell fake religion by the way you interact with other people. Now, here's the thing. None of us are perfect. All of us fall short. I fall prey to this, too. And this is convicting to me. I find myself saying things that I shouldn't say, and I go home, and i got to beat myself up for it. Here's the thing. I want to publicly repent to you now that I have not been the pastor I should be all the time. But that's no excuse. It's no excuse. Do me a favor. Don't lift your hands and worship in here and then turn around and talk crap about someone out there. That's fake religion. James 1.26, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not, does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This goes for all of us in this room. You see, part of the significance of Hophni and Phineas' sin was the fact that they were doing this while in a position that they were in. See, if you take seriously being a leader for the advancement of the gospel, it will first be evident in your relationship with God, and secondly, it will be evident in your relationship with other people. And if you struggle to be patient with certain people then sh to show them grace, the problem is not them, the problem is you. And we need to be serious about this. Now, before I get more people angry with me, we're going to move to the next point. You have fake religion, and then you see fierce justice. Fierce justice. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Whoa, where was that earlier? And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all of these people. No, my sons, it is not good. 
It is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Remember that. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to, get, to death. Now, here we learn a few things. One, Hophni and Phinehas were doing other things that were also terrible. They're doing other things that were also terrible. The, the second thing we see is this. Eli knew about everything his sons were doing. Now, Eli is going to call his sons out on this, but ultimately we see it leads to nothing because God has already determined his judgment upon them. Now, without getting into the weeds here, we're going to kind of like stick and move on this point. But I want us to be very clear. Hophni and Phinehas are going to be judged harshly for their for their sin. They're going to be judged harshly for their sin. We see that they did not repent because God did not grant them repentance. We see this similarly, similarly shown in other areas of Scripture, okay, where Paul writes to sec, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25, where he says, we're talking about certain people that, may, that maybe, perhaps, God will grant them repentance. Hebrews 12.17, talking about Saul, uh, Esau and uh, Jacob and Esau, where he, the author says, speaks of Esau having no chance to repent, okay? Here's what we need to see. But we're just going to hit this and we're going to move. One, God grants repentance, Bible is clear. God grants repentance. The second thing is this. Man is responsible for his sin. Man is responsible for his sin. We already saw that Hophni and Phinehas despise the offerings of God. God does not owe them mercy. God does not owe them mercy. He is perfectly just in decreeing his judgment upon them. And if we're honest, here's the thing I want you guys to understand, is that, that ultimately God's mercy and his grace, the offering of salvation does not last forever. I've heard it said this way, that with two hands, God, with one hand, God is calling men to himself, and with the other hand, he is holding back his wrath. And there will come a day where he will drop both hands, where he will stop inviting, and he will stop withholding his wrath. And when that day comes, it's too late. And here's the thing. We, no one knows the day or the hour. So take advantage of now. Take advantage of now. God's justice for sin is fierce and it is swift. In verses 27 through 34, God is going to explain this judgment to Eli. He's going to explain to them what's going to happen. He says, verse 27, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people? What we see, man, like Eli not only knew what was going on, but he actually allowed it to continue. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, the only one of whom you uh, sorry, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, uh, and, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. 
wow. It appears right off the bat that this seems a little bit harsh, right? Why is God punishing Eli for the sins of his sons? We need to see something, though. God makes it very clear that Eli was fully aware of his sons' sin, and because he esteemed his sons more than God, he allowed it to continue. See, Eli is being judged not simply for his for failing as a father. He's judging Eli by failing as a priest. Why? Because Eli is responsible for what happened in the worship of God in the tabernacle, and he knew what was going on and did nothing about it. That's the problem. He knew what was happening, and he did nothing about it. Eli is guilty of the same sin of his sons. Now, Right? Not because he actively did them, but because he allowed for them to continue to take place. You see, the main failing of Eli was re- he was responsible for the worship that took place in the tabernacle. And even though it was his own sons, he had the responsibility to make sure that it stopped. That it stopped. Not because, and, and, and he chose not to, and it's not because he loved his sons too much, but because he loved God too little. Ultimately, God brings judgment on Eli and his two sons because his justice is fierce. God God does not overlook any sins. Please know this, guys, for you and for me, there is not a single sin that you and I have ever committed that God just simply looks over. None. God's judgment on sin is fierce. And this is the reality for all of us. When we say that God is good, we need to understand what that actually means. If God is good, that means he is just and he is righteous. But here's the problem, is that you and I are not good. See, God is good is actually bad news for us. Because if we're bad and God is good, what does a good God do with evil people? He judges them as he should. Because God is just, he must punish sin. Punish sin. Otherwise, he is not just. Exodus 34. When God appears before Moses, what does he do? What does he say? It says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How is that possible? How, how is it? That God will say that he is gracious and merciful and forgives the sins of thousands, but at the same time, he will by no means clear the guilty. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the last point. Fantastic grace. If you go back to verse 25, when Eli confronts his sons, what does he say? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? See, all sin is ultimately a sin against God. Right? All sin is ultimately a sin against God. And the question in verse 25 is that only God, the answer is that only God can intercede. Only God can intercede for man when man sins against God. But how does God do that? How does God intercede for us? Verse 35 says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. God is talking to Eli and saying, hey, there's gonna, you're, you're about done. 
And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, all throughout this chapter, we're seeing the sons of Eli contrasted with Samuel. Now, I didn't read it because I'm trying to fly through, but when you get to Samuel, Samuel is constantly, what do we see? Samuel is growing in the Lord. He's ministering before the Lord correctly. We see that he's growing both in stature and in favor, favor before the Lord. He's a young boy, and he's, and he's growing in God, and we're seeing this amazing thing, and we're seeing, one, yes, Samuel will step up as that faithful priest, but there's something even more significant here. Who is the priest that, he, that God is talking about here? Ultimately, he's talking about Jesus, that the faithful priest why? How do we know this? Because he, will go, he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Samuel is going to die one day. Samuel is the immediate fulfillment of this, but the long-term fulfillment of this is Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who intercedes befo before the Father for you and for me. It is because of Jesus coming, dying on the cross, rising again from the grave, and standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. What does that mean? It means this, is that when you sin and when I sin, if we have a saving relationship with God through the blood of Jesus, when Jesus looks at that and he says, I paid for that one. How does God forgive your sins? And how does God not overlook sin? It's because he punishes sin on the cross. And here's the deal, guys. Every sin is paid for. It's either paid for by the sinner in hell or by Jesus on the cross. The question you have to ask yourself is this. How is my sin paid for? How can I know that my sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross? It comes through not trying to earn it, not having fake religion, not trying to project this, but simply falling on your knees and saying, God, if it's not Jesus, I have nothing else. I have nothing else. Jesus stands in that gap. But not only is Jesus our high priest, he's also our sacrifice, right? That when, G when, when, when we approach God in worship, we do so because our high priest stands before his father, presenting himself as that sacrifice that's holy and acceptable. Because of that, we have a right standing before God. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're trying to have a, be with God because of your church attendance or because of whatever it is, I'm telling you, it will fail. Don't trust in your good works. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his fantastic grace. Let go of fake religion. Be real. Here's what I want you guys to know. We just, it's like drinking from a fire hose tonight. Because I kind of wanted to like, you know, like we're going to be going through this. And I figured it'd be good to like, hey, like let's just kick the engine and go for the first one and see what happens. But here's what I want to encourage you. If there is one thing I want for you, 
I want your relationship with God to be real. Not fake. Don't do things because you think it's what your pastor wants. Don't do things because you think it's what your parents want. Do things because of your personal relationship with God. I've heard it said that God has no grandchildren, only children. Meaning this, is that you're not accepted before God because your parents are accepted before God. When you stand before God, you're going to stand before him by yourself. And where is your faith? Faith. 